I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Welcome back to Humanity in War. I'm your host, Lizzie Rushing, and today I'm humbled to be joined by the former Undersecretary General of the United Nations Office on Genocide Prevention, Adama Dieng. Thank you for joining us, Adama. My pleasure. Today, you've graciously accepted our invitation to examine the recent edition of the International Review of the Red Cross on the Sahel. And more specifically, and ahead of the upcoming COP27, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the region's climate and environment crisis. So I thought I would begin by setting the scene slightly. For those who are unaware, the Sahel stretches 5,000 kilometers across Africa from the Atlantic Ocean to the Red Sea. And from Burkina Faso and Mali to Niger and Chad, Sahelians suffer from humanitarian issues brought about by armed conflicts and violent extremism in the region. Although Sahelians are one of the smallest contributors of CO2 globally, the Sahel region is at the core of the harsh reality of climate change. So, Adama, with this in mind, could you please briefly outline what, in your opinion, are the most pressing humanitarian concerns in the region and how climate change could contribute to worsening these social, political and economic tensions that we see in the region? Well, let me first of all add to what you just mentioned about uh, how vast is the Sahel from Senegal to Sudan. Let's say that the Sahel is a region of uh, over 150 million people living in diverse environmental realms, as well as social and political challenges. And uh, of course, each country has its own unique and complex history and challenges. I mean, for decades, Sahelians have faced the worst consequences of insecurity in the region. I mean, the last decade uh, in the Sahel has been characterized by armed conflict with non-state armed groups, terrorism, and national, regional, and international counterterrorism operations. I mean, the weakness also of state institutions at the peripheries and around interstate borders have not enabled states to protect the human rights of the civilian population. And therefore, naturally, the worst affected have been civilians who have been killed, injured, or forced to flee their homes and livelihoods. I mean, children have been, for instance, directly targeted in attacks, and they have been recruited into armed groups and other parties to various conflict in the Sahel region in violation of international humanitarian law and human rights law uh, rules prohibiting such recruitment. I mean, we have also witnessed girls and women who face high rates of sexual and gender-based violence, mm-hmm. uh, carrying lifelong physical and mental scares. Millions have been forced to flee uh, from the armed conflict and violence. I mean. There are, of course, various factors to the different conflict in the Sahel region. And one uh, of such factors is a fight for already scarce 
but necessary resources such as water and land, with 70% of Sahelian dependent on agriculture or pastoralism for their sustenance. Climate change then adds fuel to existing tensions. Temperatures in the Sahel are rising 1.5 times faster than the global average, and this has led to frequent droughts and floods, which further depletes the scarce resources. This has resulted in thousands of casualties in farmer herder violence, and the underlying tension have also been utilized by armed groups and terrorist groups to recruit members and justify committing atrocities. Mm. I have seen also that the harsh climate conditions have also been linked to massive displacement in the Sahel. And in regions such as the Sahel, when the impacts of climate change are added to existing social and political challenges, they have the capacity to overburden the already weak governance institutions and capacities of states who will be unable to provide lasting solution and thereby continuing the vicious cycle of violence and displacement. And this is one of the, one of the reasons I have been always uh, advocating for strong state institutions, because at the end of the day, we need to have states observing strictly principles of the rule of law. We need to remind always states to respect and ensure that other states also respect their obligation under international humanitarian law, their obligation under human rights law. Thank you for that. And I'd like to go a little further on that point as well and stress that for Sahelian states, for all of the reasons and complex underlying factors that you've just outlined, climate change is an important and cross-cutting agenda for this entire region. And this is reflected in the fact that actually all five members of the G5 Sahel have signed and ratified the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. But however, the Sahel doesn't have the resources to tackle the issue alone, or nor frankly should they have to, if I may, given that they are, as I said, among the smallest CO2 contributors in the world. So I'm aware that to this end, Niger was working with Ireland to co-author a draft thematic resolution on climate change and security, and they brought this for a vote before the Security Council at the end of 2021, at the end of last year. Could you please tell us a little bit more about this resolution, how and why it ultimately did fail, and why, in your opinion, it's important for climate change to be on the Security Council agenda as a threat to peace and security? And where do we go from here? Well, uh, let me say, first of all, that I'm extremely glad that you have raised this uh, issue, I mean, this uh, resolution which was tabled by Niger and Ireland uh, before the Security Council. Niger was, as you may remember, a uh, member of the Security Council during the year 2020 and 2021. And uh, 
before that, allow me simply to go back and remind our listeners that uh, when Senegal, uh, the two years before, was sitting at the Security Council, uh, Senegal brought the issue of water and peace and security, making the link. But what is important today is that uh, Niger, uh, during uh, its uh, presence at the Security Council, uh, had been highlighting the challenges of developing countries, uh, such as Senegal, Niger, such as, let's say, the Sahel countries, to just name them, and also uh, highlighting issues pertaining to peace and security and the impact on development but also the protection of women and girls, as well as the impact of climate change on peace and security. And that's where I could say that I was really extremely pleased that uh, when they put that resolution on the table, they were trying to get uh, the Secretary General to integrate climate-related risk as a central component into the comprehensive conflict prevention strategies of the United Nations. And of, the goal, of course, of this resolution was to ultimately contribute to the reduction of the risk of conflict relapse due to adverse effect of climate change. And my good friend, the president of Niger, uh, Mohamed Bazou, also made a point of noting how in the Sahel and the Lake Chad regions, it is clear to see uh, the interplay of the effects of climate change and peace and security in the region. Adverse consequences of climate change in the regions have put communities in scramble and contention for the scarce resources available. The draft resolution discusses the various factors that lead to food and water scarcity and displacement, uh, such as flooding, desertification, and land degradation, which increases the risk of violence and conflict over control of the scarce resources. In the Sahel, we would have witnessed tensions and violence between farmers and pastoralists in competition for these resources. Terrorist groups and armed groups have also taken advantage of these tensions to drive their recruitment processes and atrocities as well. So the draft resolution was followed by tough negotiation at the Security Council, but ultimately, it was rejected by a negative vote from the Russian Federation. It is very sad that Russia and India voted against the resolution. It may, I may also add that China had abstained, while the remaining 12 members of the Council voted in favor. So the major contention of the resolution was the arguments that the Security Council was not the place to discuss the issue of climate change and that UN member states were divided 
on the topic of climate change. Mm -hmm. I don't buy those arguments. And uh, later we will come back uh, to this issue. So let's say, however, that the failure to reach a consensus and to have peace and climate change as a resolution of the UN Security Council is indeed more than disappointing. In the past few months alone, we have seen the devastating effects of heat waves and flooding in various countries of the world and how it's affecting their economic stabilities, which continues to exacerbate tensions and fights for resources. As I have uh, mentioned in the editorial of the Sahel edition of the International Review of the Red Cross, the adverse effects of climate change we are witnessing today in the Sahel and in other parts of the world should be wake-up calls. The international community should come together and work to address the link between scarcity of natural resources caused by climate change and peace and security. The international community cannot close its eyes because this is a matter of survival and no one can deny unless to be of a bad faith that there is a link, a nexus between uh, climate change and peace and security. And we have to remember that the Security Council has the primary responsibility for the maintenance of peace and security. Thank you very much for really that within this particular issue, a crash course on the importance and challenges of any multilateral process. But as you stress, this is one for the real essence of our collective survival. Now, in addition to its humanitarian consequences that you've talked about, the conduct of hostilities has a devastating effect on the resilience of communities in the Sahel and their ability to adapt to climate change, including through these direct attacks that we see on the natural environment and the destruction of land across the region. Why are the rules of international humanitarian law on environmental protection important in this context? And what kind of action, in your opinion, should be taken in the region to raise awareness of and compliance with these rules? Well, let's first uh, uh, remind us that for centuries, the natural environment has been the direct target of attacks or the victims of indiscriminate attacks and has faced degradation and destruction in armed conflicts. Let's say the bombing of uh, oil installation in the 80s and 90s in the Iraq-Iran war and the Gulf War, the contamination of rivers and water sources in Serbia and the Gaza Strip in the 90s and 2000s have all shown importance of robust international legal and policy frameworks for the protection of the environment. ISL has a broad protective regime for the natural environment. First and foremost being the recognition of the civilian character 
of the natural environment in armed conflict, and therefore cannot be a target of attacks or destruction unless parts of the environment has become military objective that by their nature, location, purpose, or use make an effective contribution to the military action and their destruction, capture, and neutralization offers a definite military advantage. There are also various rules on the prohibition and restriction on the means and methods of warfare that can be used on or make use of the environment in armed conflict and the ISL. Recently, the International Law Commission uh, adopted the draft principles on the protection of the environment in relation to armed conflict. The ICRC has also published its guidelines on the protection of the natural environment in armed conflict to strengthen the existing legal framework for the protection of the natural environment during and after armed conflict. Military operations such as those in the Sahel on the natural environment, of course, have adverse impacts to it and therefore contribute to a further degradation of the environment already facing desertification, drought, and flooding, among others. These exacerbate conflict and violence due to competition for scarce natural resources, leading to more military operations. And this is, of course, a vicious cycle uh, with many interconnected factors. Therefore, it is very much important to ensure respect for Aishel and not only treat Aishel as a slogan, but as a responsibility in design. Governments and non-state armed groups should respect the rules of Aishel and be held accountable for violations. Sahelians must also know these rules to ensure accountability, and this should be done through the involvement of not just governments, but also with the involvement of community and religious leaders, private enterprises, and financial organizations in dissemination and awareness raising efforts. And I can uh, uh, inform you that uh, although I have retired from my job as a UN civil servant, I'm not tired and this will be part of the activities, the new organization I have set up, the Pan-African Alliance for Transparency and the Rule of Law Patrol will be also uh, contributing because it is extremely important mm. that we mobilize the population around the ICEL rules. Interesting. Thank you. And I think that's uh, what, how we started this whole conversation is that you strike me as someone who retires and then starts up uh, eight new jobs. So could you tell me again the Pan-African Alliance, Alliance for? For Transparency in the Rule of Law. Thank yeah. you very much. Congratulations and good luck with that effort. Um, now, in back to the edition of the review, 
the Minister for Foreign Affairs in Niger, in his article, described the triple impact of climate change, conflict, and the more recent COVID-19 pandemic in the Sahel. So could you uh, add another wrench into this mix, uh, which how has this global health crisis contributed to both highlighting and exacerbating the climate and environmental crisis, conflicts, and the peacekeeping problems in the region? Well, I mean, and, and, and there is no doubt that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated uh, the existing problems, which uh, are, I mean, related to climate change, armed conflict, uh, instability, and the weak presence of strong state institutions in the Sahel, which, as we said earlier, had seriously impacted the lives and livelihood of Sahelian, uh, leading to the displacement of millions and the death of thousands. So uh, in 2019, 2020, during the pandemic, violence had increased in the Central Sahel region and led to the displacement of close to a million people despite the spread of the virus. Pressures on the already dwindled healthcare that have been shut down due to increased conflict and violence scarcity of food and water resources due to climate change and armed conflict and mass displacement for the same reasons was worsened due to COVID-19. The movement the restrictions placed to, COVID, uh, to control COVID-19 impacted pastoralists who rely on mobility to find grazing land and water for their cattle. And this exacerbated existing tension between uh, pastoralists who are forced to stay in one area, because as you may know, these pastoralists are nomad, they move with their cattle. And this, of course, uh, situation led to a further tension between them and the farmers who are rather sedentarian people. So COVID-19 also contributed to the existing food insecurity in the region due to uh, interrupted supply chains. And uh, simultaneously, it added uh, to the humanitarian needs of the population as protective measures and gears were needed uh, to slow down the spread of the virus. So the triple impact of climate change conflict and the COVID-19 pandemic in the Sahel had threatened the food security of an estimated 27 million people with fears that the number could go up to 35 million. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was reported by Action Against Hunger. So the effects of COVID-19 along with climate change and conflict impact the already deteriorating livelihood of Sahelian and could even destabilize the region further. So that is why I call again uh, to the international community uh, to pay more attention to the Sahel region. I mean, uh, I know that uh, the war in Ukraine uh, with Russia is something which take uh, much of their attention, but don't forget the Sahel region. 
Because at the end of the day, uh, if you ignore the South region, just focusing on supporting uh, Ukraine, I mean, this may backfire tomorrow and it is not in the interest of humanity. Thank you, Adama. Let's talk about the next opportunity to actually do that and draw attention uh, to the crisis in the Sahel region, which is the upcoming COP27, this year's climate change conference. So this year, the COP27 will be focused on, quote unquote, uniting the world to tackle climate change. So with all of the things that we've discussed today, how do you think that we can better draw the attention of the international community to this link between the issues of climate change, peace, security, and development in the Sahel during the upcoming conference? In other words, what would be your key messages and asks to the participants? I would first and foremost say that climate change is no longer a potential problem for our children and our children's children. It is here and now. Just this year, we have witnessed entire cities completely submerged underwater due to unprecedented floods, while other places where rivers where, which used to be a lifeline for agriculture and pastoralism, are drying up and no longer sustainable. The fight for resources is, getting, is going to get worse, leading to instability in many parts of the world. Everyone is feeling the effects of climate change, although at differing degrees of intensity. We cannot wait until we don't have a planet to live in anymore. We need to act now. And the international community need to address this problem vigorously. And this is what makes multilateral processes such as the COPS a very important platform to strengthen international efforts to take urgent climate action focus on both preventive as well as mitigating actions. There is also a need to reach a collective consensus on the nexus between climate change and peace and security. This nexus which was proposed by Niger and Ireland for the Security Council. And this would need to be designed in the form of policy frameworks adaptable by every country and can be implemented on an international, continental, regional and national levels. Countries must also keep the promises made in previous COPs to support the mitigation effort. Unfortunately, countries are still dragging their food and I'm referring to those countries which have the resources which could have helped and which are also at the same time the countries which pollute the most our planet mm -hmm. and it is important that they come in support so cop 27 is an african cup in so many ways from being held in the african continent in egypt egypt which harbored I would say the first uh, black civilization as demonstrated by Sheikh Antajo. So no one can deny 
the Africanity of Egypt. And also due to the continent being one of the worst affected by the climate change, although being the one who is polluting the least, the least and clearly as we have seen it in the Sahel region. And therefore, this COP27 should be a stage where the African group coordinates and strengthen its collective position to negotiate for a better implementation of international law, as well as the obligations in the Paris Agreement. And I hope that the African leaders will make it a point to be united, to not accept any division among themselves, because it is about the future of our today's children, it is about the future of our planet. Thank you, Adama. And I commit to doing our best to make sure that as many people at that COP27 hear your messages as well, uh, because they are indeed important ones. Um, I'm just going to end the conversation by asking you a question that I'd like to ask all of the guests at Humanity and War. Uh, just to leave our listeners on a bit of a lighter note uh, after discussing these deep issues. And that question is, what are you reading right now? What book is on your nightstand, or in this case, your traveling nightstand? Well, uh, I'm right now reading uh, a book called The Pope and the Grand Imam, A Thorny Path. A Thorny Path. Uh, yeah, okay. this is a testimony to the birth of the Human Fraternity Document. The Human mm -hmm. Fraternity Document, which was signed by uh, His Holiness, uh, Pope Francis, and His Eminence, uh, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, Dr. Ahmed Tayeb. And uh, if you go back to that uh, Human Fraternity Document, climate uh, change is featured in that document. So that means the, these two religious leaders are committed uh, to make also sure that the, their followers get mobilized around this uh, struggle for humanity, making sure that uh, we really make every effort uh, to address the climate change issue. So that is the book I'm reading and which is written by the uh, Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Elders, Judge Mohammed Abdel Salam. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, that sounds like a fascinating read and completely relevant to everything that we were talking about uh, the rest of the conversation. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you for your for your time uh, today and for your energy and your insight and more importantly for the work that you've done on this and many other issues in the Sahel and worldwide in your career. Thank you so much for joining us today. And as I said, we are gonna do our very best to make sure that the important messages that you have here are passed along to the right ears. Thank you so much, Adama. Yeah, most welcome. And I look forward to your support uh, in my project in Africa, Patrol being one, and the second one being the uh, starting of a regional center based in Kigali uh, for the prevention of genocide and other atrocity crimes, which will provide training to diplomat, NGO leaders, uh, civil society, name them all. Because at the end of the day, we have to make sure that each one assume responsibility so that 
never again we witness uh, crimes against humanity, genocide, etc. We need all to join efforts uh, to make our world and to make Africa a better place to live. And that is why I have these two regions, these two projects, one in West Africa, Dakar, the second in uh, Kigali, based in East Africa. Thank you for, for signaling that as well. That sounds like another fascinating discussion. If you would ever be willing to come back for another episode with us. Certainly, certainly we'll do. Thank you and safe travels and uh, we'll be in touch with you soon. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.